So we're talking about this idea uh, that God has sovereignly and providentially placed you next to some people, right? When you go home, they're there. When you look out your window, there they are. Um, They're always there. They are neighbors, right? Uh, These people are your neighbors. God has placed you next to your neighbors for a reason. It wasn't coincidence or or accident that you are placed next to them. And, And what if Jesus, when he said to love your neighbor as yourself, wasn't being cute or cliche-ish so you'd have something to put on a bumper sticker, but was being literal? What if he wasn't being metaphorical? What if he wasn't being symbolic, but he was talking about your actual neighbors? Love your actual neighbor's as yourself, because what we've done with this command, it's called the greatest command or the great commandment. What we've done with this command is we've kind of made it so big and lofty and philosophical that everybody is our neighbor, right? And when everybody's our neighbor, nobody's our neighbor. And so we've forsa- forsaken, forsaken, we've forsaken the, our, our actual neighbors, the people who live next to us and said we're loving everybody. And that's not, I think, I don't think that's what Jesus had in mind with this. And so in week one, we, we all did this little exercise where you filled out some stuff about eight of your neighbors and uh, about less than 10% of us were even able to put names for eight houses that lived, lived closest to our house, eight people that live closest to our house. So uh, we couldn't even get the names, much less uh, anything deeper uh, about them. And yet we found that day as we looked in the scriptures that it is all over the Bible, not just once or twice, but all over the Bible, this idea that we are placed in somewhere on purpose by God to love our actual neighbors as ourselves. If you missed week one and you haven't listened to the message yet, make sure you go get the podcast off of iTunes or our website because I don't think I've ever preached a series of messages that is so tied to week one. And so you need to listen to that if you haven't already. All the rest of these messages just don't make as much sense without that. Then last week, uh, we talked about our motives in this whole thing. We talked about the idea that you can't have an ulterior motive to neighboring, right? You can't be a sneaky Jesus ninja just sneaking around your neighborhood and concealing your, really, your real intentions. You can't do that. You have to, you have to love your neighbor uh, just because you want to love them, not because there's some ulterior motive. But you definitely need to have an ultimate motive. I mean, your ultimate motive has to be to, to make Jesus followers out of your neighbor. But that's that's in game. That's long term, right? That's not, that's not today or tomorrow. And so we talked about our motives last week. And then this week is excuses. We're going to talk about excuses. Last week was motives. This week is excuses. And last week, we used this illustration of cleaning out your garage to talk about how sometimes we can get overwhelmed by a project and we get overwhelmed into doing nothing, Right? And so we talked about how you drive up to your garage and you click the garage door opener and it slowly comes up and reveals all the junk in your garage like it's some big prize on a game show, right? And you're like, oh gosh, I got to clean out the garage. And so you get out and you walk by all the junk and you just go, man, I don't even know where to start. And so you just go in and you do nothing. It was so hard, I did nothing, right? Right? And that's kind of how we get overwhelmed into doing nothing because we don't feel like we can do enough today. And so um, when we're talking about that, as we're talking about neighboring like God wants us to neighbor, it, it can be like that. When we talk about the great, the great commandment, we can go, man, I don't even know where to start. I don't even know how to do this. And then what comes next are excuses. 
We start to come up with reasons why we can't do it, why I can't fulfill the great commandment, why, why I'm not neighboring the way God wants me to neighbor, right? I mean, we call them reasons, but really they're just excuses. My football coach, and probably every football coach that's ever lived, used to say this, excuses are like armpits. Everybody's got them, and they stink. Ever heard that before? Maybe it was just mine. But he didn't actually say, he didn't actually say armpits. He used another part of the anatomy. Because um, he was always trying to get like some school stuff in practice. So he's teaching us about anatomy. So that was, he was a really good coach. He's a really good coach. Excuses are like armpits. We'll go with that. Everybody's got them and they stink. We all make this, these excuses. We, we all come up with excuses. Excuses are just reasons without reason. That's what excuses are. I mean, they're, they're reasons that don't make sense, don't really pass the sniff test. Like, I can't help you move because I'm washing my hair today. That wouldn't make sense if I said that, right? Or I, I can't help you because of this or, or that. Or I, I can't pay the rent because I've been entered into the witness protection program. It just didn't pass the sniff test. doesn't make any sense. I found this online, an example of excuses given uh, to somebody who wants to break up with their boyfriend or girlfriend. It says, I just don't have time for a relationship right now. You see, I got, I've got to focus on finding out the truth about Benghazi. Plus, I have a high-maintenance bird that demands a lot of my attention, which makes my other pets jealous, so now I need to spend more time with my dog. Besides, what month is this? September? Yeah. In October and November, I got a lot of birthday parties I got to go to, so I'm just not going to have time to spend with you. All right. Let me just be honest. Here's the deal. I just can't be with somebody who liked the movie Sharknado. I just can't do it. I just can't. Excuses are are things we say are reasons, but they don't pass the sniff test. They don't make any sense. And there's a point with kids where excuses get really funny, right? If you're a parent, excuses get really funny because they haven't really figured out how to make it sound real. Um, Early on, when they're real little, uh, they don't even know what excuses are. They're just brutally honest. And I love that stage. Uh, And so, like, hey, why'd you hit your sister? Because I hate her face, okay? (laughs) All right? I just wanted to hurt her face. All right, well, I can go somewhere. That's honesty, right? I can do something with that. Uh, why aren't you eating your dinner? Because I hate it. Okay, at least we're being honest. That's a, that's a real reason. But then they start to kind of try to make up excuses, uh, but they're not good at it yet, so it doesn't make any sense. Like my son Joshua, who's three, almost four, four on Sunday, actually, next Sunday, um, he, he likes to say that he's, he, he accidentally did it, right? Did any of your kids say that, like accidentally did it? And so we're sitting there at, long, at dinner, and, and at, when we do dinner, we always, at, at the house, we always talk about highs and lows. Everybody goes around and says they're high and they're low for the day, and we just talk about it. And so Joshua's low was something like I got, not too long ago, was something like I got in trouble and I had to go to my room. And so I was like, okay, well, you know, what'd you, what'd you do? What'd you, what'd you get in trouble for? And he was like, oh, because I accidentally flooded the playroom. <laughs> what? How'd you do that? I put towels in the sink and turned it on. I, I wanted to give Hannah a shower. Hannah's one. I wanted to give Hannah a shower. She asked me to. Really, it was an accident, Daddy. It was an accident. 
hmm, doesn't pass the sniff test, does it? But we do this as adults too. We throw out excuses that just don't make sense. They may not sound as ridiculous as those from a three-year-old, but they are. They don't pass the sniff test. Everybody has them and they stink. When you start to consider the mission of God to reach the world with the gospel through the church, one neighbor at a time, your tendency can be to make excuses as to why you just can't do it, why this is for other people and not you and you just can't do this. So I want to talk to you today about two excuses, two main excuses. The first one is our culture and our time's favorite excuse. So excuse number one, I don't have enough time. Excuse number one, I don't have enough time. We live in a culture built on speed, accomplishing things faster and faster than ever before, efficiency, and yet we are the busiest people, people ever to walk planet Earth, right? Because the idea of technology and efficiency is that it's supposed to do things faster and easier so that you have more time to do things you really want to do. But instead of giving us more free time, it's all just made us add more to our lives, right? And we're getting fuller and fuller and fuller, and it's just busier and busier. At least we, we think we're busy. If, if you don't believe what I'm saying, just ask somebody how they're doing. Hey, how's it going? Nine times out of ten, they'll say, busy. Hey, how's it going? Busy. So busy. Really? What have you been doing? Busy. Just busy. <laughs> how's it going? Sometimes they'll say good, but then they'll follow up with, but busy. Right? I mean, you probably heard some people say that this morning. Everybody always says, how are you doing at church, right? So you said, how are you doing? They're like, great, but it's just so busy, right? Just so busy. Nobody ever says, I got nothing going on. Man, I got all this free time. God, I don't even know what to do with all the time I have. How are you doing? Has anybody ever said that ever? I've never heard anybody say that, right? It doesn't matter who you are, retired, big career, parent, not a parent, grandparent, not a grandparent. Nobody says that. Everybody is so busy. It's because busyness is a badge of honor in our culture and in our time, isn't it? To be busy is to be important, needed, vital. God forbid we have some free time because then we'd be wasting time. God forbid we just sit around and hang out with our family or sit around and think. That'd be wasting time. Too busy for church, too busy to parent like we know we should, too busy to show up, too busy to open our Bible every day, too busy to help the guy on the side of the street that needs help, too busy to neighbor like we're supposed to neighbor. I just don't have enough time. Think about that statement for a second. It sounds like when you say, I just don't have enough time, like some people are given more time in the day than other people, right? Like, well, they're given, they have 36 hours in a day, and then they have 32, but I, I only have 24. So I just don't have enough time. I just don't have enough. But that's not the way it works, right? All of us have been given the same amount of time each day, 24 hours. And listen, the only person who decides what you do with that 24 hours is you. You're the only one who decides your schedule. And this might be tough to take, but I believe it's absolutely true in our area of the world. What you do with your time reveals what you value most. 
What you do with your time reveals what you value most. If, if I want to know what you really value, what, what your priority is, all I have to do is figure out how do you spend your time. What do you spend your time doing? I just look at your calendar. I just look at your schedule, and I figure out what you're spending your time on because that's what you value most. Most. Here's the truth. Everyone makes time for what they value most. Everybody makes time for what they value most. If you value it, you'll make time for it. If you don't make time for it, you don't value it. That's the implication here. No excuses. You're the only one in charge of your schedule. Listen, pastors are notorious for giving their lives to ministry and helping people for the sake of the gospel, all the while neglecting their families. Pastors are notorious for that because the stakes are so high and you feel like you're doing something good for God and you can easily spend your life being a superstar pastor and an absentee father and an absentee husband. So I feel this pull just like you do. My job is one that never ends. There's never an end and a beginning to pastoring. It's always there. I'm never not pastor. People have needs 24-7. And listen, it's not just that people have needs. I like helping people. I like helping them take their next step towards God. I like helping them fulfill the calling God has on their lives. I like mentoring. I like meeting with people. I like counseling. I like all that. I like to see what God does through me to help other people. I like it. But if I'm not careful, I can be a great pastor and a really, really bad dad, a really, really horrible husband. So I've chosen to not let that happen. I've chosen to, to make Sabbath a, a priority. Sabbath is just one day a week when you don't do anything but be with your family and be with God. That's what Sabbath is, a whole day together. You might not have a day like that. You go, well, I Sabbath every night for eight hours. No, <laughs> that's not what I'm talking about. A whole day where you spend 24 hours, a whole day where you spend with your family, you don't do anything crazy, you, you pray, you, you spend time with God, but you don't do anything strenuous or crazy. You can go out and you can hang out with your family and do all that, but, but it can't be stressful. That's the whole idea of Sabbath. So I've chosen to guard my Fridays as Sabbath. My Fridays are like your Saturdays because I work on Sunday, right? You can write that down if you can. It's kind of a tongue twister, but I've, I nailed it, all right? So... My Fridays, your Saturdays, because I work on Sunday. And so Fridays for us is Sabbath, man. We, I don't schedule things on Friday. There are times where, where I just can't help it and I have to do something, but then I just move my Sabbath that week to another day. So I'm always doing Sabbath. I'm always spending a whole day with my family. Not just an hour or two before bedtime. That's good, but that's not the same. Spending a whole day with my family, giving them my time and giving God my time on that, sab- that Sabbath. Listen, I am the only one in charge of my schedule. Within this whole idea, busyness is not an excuse for me, just like it's not an excuse for you. We all fight this battle. I'm going to make time for what I value most, and so are you. You say, well, not me, pastor. My job, I got this big job. I got a big job. People count on me. The world will end if I don't go to work. All right, <laughs> just chill. It's probably not true. I got to work 70 hours a week to pay the bills, Pastor. You don't understand. Really? Well, the truth is that's what you've chosen, right? I mean, let's be honest. You've chosen to live in the house you live in, drive the car you drive, have the lifestyle you have. 
And in order to pull that off, maybe you do need to work seven days a week. But that's your choice, your choice, right? Some of you say, well, it's just the kids. It's just a season. It's kids' sports. I mean, we've got four, and they all play sports all the time, practices and games every night of the week and on the weekend. That sounds like a good reason. Most people, no matter what you're talking about, when you say that reason, they go, oh, good, because family, and, and yeah, that's no, no problem. It sounds like a good reason, but it's really just an excuse when it comes to deciding not to follow the commands of God. It's just an excuse. All of those are choices. I know this might blow your mind some, for some of you, but you don't have to do sports. I know, it was crazy. I shouldn't have said it. You don't have to do sports. Let me, let me walk it back one step and see if you can accept this one. You don't have to do multiple sports. Let me walk it back a little bit further. You don't have to do weekend sports. You don't have to do select sports that take your family out of your home every night of the week and make you miss church and whatever else on the weekends. I'm probably way off, right? Like some of you are taking notes like, he's crazy. (laughs) We have to do sports, (laughs) obviously. Just something to think about. The Apostle Paul writes this in, in Ephesians 5. It'll be on the screen, so you don't have to turn there. But he says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Wisdom is making the best use of your time. And you need wisdom to figure out how to use your time, because the days themselves are evil. In other words, this doesn't happen by accident. You don't stumble into this by accident. Making time for what Jesus wants you to make time for. Valuing what Jesus values. It doesn't happen by accident. You have to be intentional. It takes wisdom reprioritizing your life. You have to take time to understand what is the will of God for my life? What does he want for me? Is he asking me to work 70 hours a week? Is he asking me to coach six sports a year? Is he asking me to reach out to my neighbors and love them as myself or not? What is his will? The Apostle Paul says, don't be foolish. That's just another way to say don't be dumb, right? Don't be dumb. He says, don't be dumb. Figure out what the Lord's will is and then make the best use of your time to accomplish that will. Be intentional and careful and wise because the days are evil. The days are evil. The idea here is that it's not just evil things that are evil, right? It's not just things that you, that look dark and nasty. It's not just things that are obviously against God's will for your lives. It's the whole day. If you're not careful, you'll let the day suck up all your time doing good things that aren't God things, and you'll miss it. Good things can easily get in the way of God things, can't they? Isn't that what makes this, isn't that what what makes this so difficult? That good things can get in the way of God things. If you have your Bible, you can grab it and head over to Luke chapter 10. In Luke 10, um, right after Jesus talks about loving your neighbor as yourself, and he tells the parable of uh, the, the good Samaritan. It says this in verse 38, Luke 10, 
starting in verse 38. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Okay, so Jesus shows up at Martha's house. And her sister Mary is there. And this is a big deal. The rabbi has chosen to come to my house, right? This is a big deal. And so Martha starts to serve and serve and serve. She thinks, I love Jesus. He deserves my service. I'm going to serve. I'm going to make him food. I'm going to do And listen, if you had never heard the end of this story, or you've never heard this story, or, or whatever, you would absolutely be Team Martha, Right? I mean, all of us would be Team Martha. If we walked in at the beginning of this scene, and we saw Martha serving Jesus a drink. And we saw Martha asking Jesus what he wants and going back to the kitchen and working and making a meal for the rabbi. And we saw Mary just sitting on the couch. We'd be like, Mary, get up and help your sister, girl. She's serving Jesus. Like, you need to get up and serve Jesus. Stop being lazy. Go serve Jesus. We would absolutely be Team Martha, wouldn't we? Yeah, this is crazy. Did, did Martha really just get reprimanded for serving Jesus? Think about that. It's crazy, but that's, that's why this passage is so powerful. Martha was distracted not by evil, but by good. Not by selfishness, but by selflessness. She was distracted not by a desire to be served, to be first, but by a desire to serve and be last. Isn't that interesting? It says Martha was distracted with much serving. But look at Mary. Mary sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. Both Mary and Martha had the same choice, didn't they? They had the same amount of time with Jesus. They had the same options. They had the same opportunities. And the choice wasn't between bad and good. The choice was between what was good and what was best. What was good and what was right. A good thing and a God thing. Martha chose a good thing to serve. But she missed out on the God thing. To be with Jesus sit at his feet, and be taught by him. Listen, beloved, making time for the great commandment to love God and your neighbor as yourself is about choosing the God thing over the good thing. Sometimes that's a difficult choice, isn't it? You living a hurried, frantic, busy, excuse-filled lifestyle is just not what God has planned for you. You cannot fulfill God's purpose for your life that way. You're choosing to chase after a ton of good things, and it's making you miss out on the one God thing you're supposed to chase after. We're to love our actual neighbors as ourselves. We're to reach out to them and build gospel-centered relationships we're to love them. And love, love always takes time, doesn't it? Love always takes time. 
That's what an author named John Ortberg, Ortberg said, or he wrote. He, he wrote this, love and hurry are fundamentally incompatible. Love always takes time. And time is the one thing hurried people don't have. Following Jesus takes real sacrifice. Love takes time, and you'll make time for whatever it is you value most. My hope is that you'll begin to value neighboring, fulfilling the great commandment to such an extent that your schedule will actually change, that your priorities will change, that your pace of life will begin to slow so that you can do this right. It's not easy. For some of you, it's going to take a dramatic shift in the way you organize your lives. It may take some difficult conversations between you and your spouse. It may take some hard discussions between parents and kids about what is priority and what is not and how we center our lives around Christ. But you've got to do it. Because Ephesians 5 said the days are evil. You have to do it, otherwise you'll look up in 10 years and you'll realize you haven't even gotten close to making the best use of your time, like Ephesians 5 said, and figuring out what the will of the Lord is for you and your family. So first excuse, I don't have enough time. But we all make time for what we value most. There are tons of excuses you could come up with as to why you can't fulfill the, God, the, the great commandment, why you can't do what God is asking you to do. Everybody's got excuses and they stink. I don't have enough time is just one of them. The other one I want to talk to you about today is this. Excuse number two, it's too hard. Excuse number one, I don't have enough time. Excuse number two, it's too hard. It's just too hard. I can't do it, Pastor. You don't know my neighbors. They're crazy. They're different. They're weird. They do weird things. Pastor, my neighbor mows his lawn without his shirt on all the time. And it looks like he's wearing a sweater. How can I possibly build a relationship with sweater back guy? It's too hard. I can't do it. Some of you are looking at sweater back guy right now. <laughs> like, that's totally you, dude. My neighbors are smashed by 5 p.m. every Saturday. It's too hard. My neighbor is a Buddhist. It's too hard. My neighbor has so much drama in her life. I can't do it. It's too hard. Pastor, I live next to Creepy McCreeperton. I'm not going to be his friend. Come on. He's weird. I'm joking a little bit. But neighboring, like we're talking about, really is difficult. There are some real concerns, some real obstacles. But I would say that a lot of things that we use as excuses our perceptions of our neighbors, our assumptions about them are, are, are based on nothing. I'd say that most of what we're using as excuses isn't really real at all, that we've made these assumptions that are wrong, like that guy makes me feel uncomfortable, that family is stuck up, that lady is, has too much drama in her life, our neighbors next door hate us, right? So we just use these excuses. What I'm saying is that I think a lot of what's keeping us from neighboring like God wants us to is just in our heads, we psyched ourselves out with stuff that, that's really not true. And when you do start to build friendships with your neighbors, you'll figure out that they have some assumptions about you too, right? And you're like, what? Why'd you think that? I don't know. I just thought that you were in the mafia. <laughs> you just looked like a mafia person, you know? And they're just ridiculous uh, 
assumptions that, that don't make any sense. I thought you hated me. Why? We've never spoken before. I don't know. It's just your face. <laughs> just your face has a look on it. Sweater back guy. So I, I think they're just, they're just wrong. We've, we've made assumptions where we shouldn't have. And you'll find out that, that they're ridiculous. And that, so that's the first thing that I want you to think about with excuse number two, that, that it's probably not even real. Our assumptions are usually incorrect. But here's the other thing. Does it even matter? I mean, let's assume that all of your perceptions and assumptions and thoughts about your neighbors are all 100% correct. Does it matter? In other words, does the difficulty of something make it any less right worthwhile, or commanded by God? Does the difficulty of something make, make it any less right, worthwhile, or commanded by God? I don't think so. I don't think the difficulty of a task or, or the, the difficulty of a, of a life change or whatever it is has any bearing on whether God wants you to do it or not, and yet that's what we use to figure out whether we should do it or whether we are going to do it, Right? We go, man, it's just too hard. It's just, it's just difficult. I'm not going to do it. It's just, how hard is this going to be? That's our question. But does that really matter? Maybe neighboring is hard. But I think when you're saying it's too hard, it's, it's just an excuse. Because it doesn't change the fact that the commandment is real. And then there's this side too. We, we as Jesus followers, we approach life differently than those who do not follow Jesus, Right? I mean, faith-filled people who believe in God and trust in the Bible, we look at the world, at life, and even at difficulty differently than people who don't follow God, right? Or at least we should. At least we should. Because we believe in not just the seen, but the unseen. We believe and trust not only the physical, but the spiritual. We rely not only on the natural, but on the supernatural as well. You see, when something looks difficult, our, our tendency is to think about what we can and can't do, what we are able to accomplish and what we are unable to accomplish, how far our strengths will take us and how much our weaknesses will hold us back. We make ourselves the center of that. That's the scene. That's the physical. But we are a people who trust not only in the natural, but the supernatural. Not only the physical, but the spiritual as well. Not only in the seen, but in the unseen. As Jesus followers, whose calling and purpose it is to make Jesus followers, we don't approach difficulty with the same focus. We don't focus on what we can do because we're not alone. We don't focus on our strengths and weaknesses because... We know the one who has all strength, right? We don't focus on just the physical because we serve a spiritual God. So when you look at your neighbors and you say, ah, it's just too hard to reach out to them. It's just too hard to live this thing out. What do you mean? When you use that excuse, what do you mean? Too hard for whom? Too hard for you? Well, you're probably right. It's too hard for you to do this. But too hard for God? For the one who gave you this purpose and this commandment 
to begin with, too hard for the one who placed you where you are and when you are for this very reason, who, who knit you in your mother's womb, knows the number of hairs on your head, created you just like you are on purpose, who, who the Bible says is able to do exceedingly and abundantly more than we could ever ask or imagine, too hard for him? Nah. It's not too hard for him. Check out Numbers 13 with me real quick. Um, I know you guys love the book of Numbers. Um, I get probably an email a week. Just ask me to preach through Numbers. So here you go. Here you go. This is, this is it. So um, we're going to read in 27, verse, or chapter 13 of Numbers, verse 27. But uh, what's happening here is that Moses has sent some spies into the promised land and asked them to bring back a report about how they're going to enter the promised land. So they have left Egypt. It's been this harrowing journey across the desert to the promised land. They finally arrived. People have died. Miracles have happened. This crazy stuff has happened. And they finally get to the, the promised land. And Moses goes, okay, you 12, you go check it out. You go check it out and bring us back a report. And this is their report in verse 27. And they told him, we came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev, the Hittites and the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel, a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, the land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim. And we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers. And so we seemed to them. So Caleb... And later we found out, uh, find out another spy, Joshua. They say, let's do it. We were there. We can take them. Let's do this thing. Let's take the land God has given us. But the other 10 spies are afraid. They don't want to take the land. Why? Because it's too hard. It's going to cost too much. It's too hard. We can't do this. The people there are too strong. They even say, we're like grasshoppers to them. They're too strong. So even after all of the miracles they've seen with God leading them out of the land of Egypt and all the way to the promised land, they're still focused, these spies are still focused on what they're able to do and not able to do, aren't they? Their own ability to take the land. They're looking at the people there and they're saying, they're bigger than me. They're stronger than me. They're better than me. It's too hard. But Joshua later says, the land is good. If God wants to, he'll give it to us. Let's just go. You see, he's looking from a different perspective, isn't he? He's not saying, are they bigger than us? He's saying, are they bigger than God? Are they stronger than us? Who cares? Are they stronger than God? He's not saying they're better than me. He's saying, are they better than God? 
You see how that's a different perspective to have? The question isn't, is this too hard for me? The question is, is it too hard for God? And in case you're wondering, the answer to the second question is always no. It's not too hard for God. Nothing is too hard for God. Nothing is too difficult for him. Nothing is impossible for the God who created and sustains all that is and all that ever will be. You might not be able to pull pull this whole love your neighbor as yourself thing off, but God absolutely can. I can't, but he can. The Israelites, they didn't go to the promised land in, in Numbers 13. The people rebelled against God and They listened to the excuses of the ten spies. And you know what happened next? A whole lot of nothing. God made the Israelites wander in the desert, a big circle in the desert, for 40 years. They did nothing for 40 years. No purpose, no deeper meaning, no mission. Just go to the desert and walk a big circle for 40 years. And everyone died in that, in that generation besides Joshua and Caleb. The ones who trusted God's strength over their own weaknesses. They are the ones who end up eventually leading the people into the promised land. Everyone else missed it. Everyone else missed it. Let me say it this way. You ever heard of these guys? Shemua, Shaphat, Egal, Paltai, Gadiel, Gadai, Amiel, Sether, Nabi, Geul. Ever heard those guys before? Does anybody know anybody named Shemua? Yes, that would be an interesting name today. So Shemua, how many of you thought about naming your son Gadiel? Anybody? Paul Ty, make the list. Did that make it for anybody? No. And maybe you're thinking like, well, they're Hebrew names and I'm not Hebrew, so obviously I'm not going to consider these names. But let me give you two more names. These are Hebrew names too. Joshua, Caleb. Ever heard of these guys before? Yeah. Know anyone named that? Maybe considered naming your sons that? I did. Yeah. You see, you can choose to say, well, it's, it's too hard. It's just too hard. You can use that excuse when it comes to neighboring and loving your actual neighbors as yourself. You can focus on the difficulty and how you measure up to it. You're just a grasshopper compared to it instead of how God measures up to it. But there's a warning here. If you go that route, you'll spend a lifetime wandering in the desert doing nothing and you'll miss out on the promised land God has prepared for you. But listen, not just you. Others will miss out on it too. People that God wants you to reach, people that God wants you to share your story with, people, neighbors that you're forsaking. Because it wasn't just the 10 spies whose names you don't know that didn't go into the promised land. It was a whole generation of the Israelites, right? It's a whole generation. You could come up with a lot of excuses other excuses why you can't follow the great commandment to love God with all that you have 
and love your actual neighbor as yourself. It's not just time and it's not just how hard it is. Excuses are everywhere, like armpits. They stink. Everybody's got them and they stink. They're just reasons without reason. Just like a three-year-old who says he accidentally flooded the playroom because he needed to give his sister a bath in the sink. In the end, they don't hold water. See what I did there? They don't pass the sniff test. And honestly, they're laughable, aren't they? You don't have time? Stop playing. You got the same amount each day as everyone else on planet Earth. And you'll make time for the things you value most. All of us will. So the question is, will you choose good things or God things? It's too hard? Well, maybe for you. It's not too hard for God, the one who called you to this. It's not too hard for him. So will you trust in God's strength or your own? Man, I wish I could answer these questions for you. But I can't. My hope is that you'll wrestle with this a little bit this week, that you'll have some conversations about it, that you'll rearrange some things and ask some hard questions of yourself and your family, that you'll talk about it in life group and go deep and try to figure this thing out. Because loving your actual neighbor as yourself, it's not a suggestion. It's a command. Love goes next door. Always. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would convict us by our excuses. That you would begin to just work on our hearts, our stubbornness, our pride, that seeks to prove that we're okay, that we haven't done anything wrong, that we are right where you want us to be. Lord, I pray that you would convict us where we need to step out and get past this excuse that we don't have enough time. God, let it sink deep into our hearts that we are the only one who decides what we do with the 24 hours you give us each day. It it falls to us to decide that. You've given us that choice. And so, Lord, I, I just pray that we would leave here desiring a plan, a plan of action, a plan that's intentional, that we would go home and we'd talk to our wives or husbands and our kids and we'd get a piece of paper out and start to write down what it is that we do with our time right now and, and try to figure out, does this honor God? Does this fulfill the great commandment? Lord, I pray for those in here who would look at difficulty in their lives, whether it's neighboring, loving our neighbors as ourselves, or, or whether it's something else in their lives that, that, are, that is difficult. I pray for those that would look at that difficulty, that trial, that obstacle, and they would think about how they are unable to overcome it, how they don't have what they need to overcome it. They would stop at, I can't do it. I pray for those in this room who are like that, and I pray, Lord, that you would help them take the next step, that when they see difficulty and they say rightfully, I can't do it, that they wouldn't stop there, but that they would say, I can't do it, but God can that we would begin to look at difficulty with a different perspective and realize that how hard something is has no bearing on whether you're calling us to to do it. Convict us, Lord. Give us the strength we need. Let us lean on you. 
to love our neighbors as ourselves. As we continue in an attitude of prayer and you've got your heads bowed and your eyes closed, and this is just a moment where I, I just ask you to think and pray to God and say, God, what is it that you're speaking to me today? Not what, should you, what, what are you saying to my husband or my wife or my son that I wish, wish was here? Nothing like that. Just what are you saying to me? Just ask the Lord right now, God, what are you saying to me? What do I need to do based on the word that was spoken today? Maybe you're in here and you're a Jesus follower, but you've been making a lot of excuses. And you just, in this moment, you just need to repent. Repentance isn't something that we do just one time when we give our lives to Jesus. Repentance should be ongoing and a daily thing that we do as followers of Jesus. And so right now, you just need to repent of all the excuses that you've been throwing out as to why you can't follow God with your whole heart, why you can't love your neighbor as yourself. And you just need to repent and confess and say, God, I've dishonored you with these. They don't pass the sniff test. They don't make any sense. They're laughable. And yet I've offered them as reasons why I can't do what you're asking me and telling me to do. Just begin to repent and ask for forgiveness of that. And then ask the Lord just to, to help you figure it out, to give you the... The, the power, the boldness, the trust and the faith to step out and begin to do what he's asking you to do. And maybe you're in here and you haven't given your life over to Christ. I want to give you just a moment to make that decision. Don't leave here without giving your life to Jesus. You're, we've talked about Jesus followers making Jesus followers and we're talking about loving your neighbor as yourself because of the great love Jesus has for you and you haven't yet accepted that love. You haven't yet stepped in and become one of his. If that's you, you don't need a special prayer or a pastor or a priest. You just need to give your life over to Christ in your own way. Just tell him you submit to him. You need his help. You can't do anything without him. And then from this day forward, begin to make him first in your life. Or a better way to say that is to make him the center of your life. Begin to do that. Talk to somebody about it. Talk to a, a friend about it. Get prayer from a prayer worker. But don't leave here without giving your life over to Christ. Lord, I pray that you would let whatever is of you that was spoken today and saying today, that it would you would let that sink deep into our hearts. And that today would be a moment, Lord, where something in the depths of our soul would just click and we would start to trust you like we're supposed to. We would start to live this thing out in our neighborhoods. Whatever is of you, Lord, let it haunt us this week. Let it be easily remembered. Let us not be able to escape it, and whatever wasn't of you, let it fall quickly to the wayside and be forgotten. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. Why don't you stand with me? Here's my prayer for you today. May you be convicted by your excuses. May you value the commands of God enough to make time for them. And as you seek to love your neighbor as yourself, may you trust not in yourself, but in the God who called you to this, in the first place. God bless you. Make sure you go to a life group this week. Discuss all that this means in your life. And I'll see you next week. Sing this out. Where you go, 